Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Joy. On today's episode, we talked with Chaplain Barry Black. He's the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. His new book is called Nothing to Fear, which is his second book with Tyndale. His first one was The Blessing of Adversity. Mm-hmm. And in Nothing to Fear, Chaplain Black explains some principles and prayers to help us thrive in a threatening world. And it's a very timely book. Uh, chaplain Black was able to relate it to his work as uh, the chaplain of the U.S. Senate and talk about how he has seen the Lord work in all sorts of ways. And we are actually encouraging you to go to our new blog called readthearc.com. And there we have a prayer challenge for you to take up seven days. And it's praying through some of the principles that Chaplain Black talks about. And we're really hoping that this encourages you. So listening to the podcast will give you even more background to that. Right. And we'll put a link to that prayer challenge in the notes of this podcast. If you want to learn more about Nothing to Fear, you can visit Tyndale.com or you can find the book anywhere books are sold. So we are very excited to welcome Chaplain Barry Black, who is author of two Tyndale books, The Blessing of, of Adversity, and his newest book, Nothing to Fear. Chaplain Black, welcome to the, the podcast today. It is my honor to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your background? I know you um, started at, uh, you became a Navy chaplain in the mid-70s. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your journey to uh, how you started um you're basically how you became a chaplain. Well, I I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I went to church school, parochial schools from grade one all the way through seminary. I went to um, a college in Alabama, Oakwood University, where I studied theology and then uh, went to a seminary in Darien Springs, Michigan, and when I left the seminary in December of 1972, I pastored um, eight churches simultaneously in North and South Carolina. So I was a circuit-riding chaplain or pastor with uh, about three sermons every weekend uh, that I had to do, one at nine, one at 11, and one at three. Uh, it was wonderful training because I was a newlywed and I insisted on not repeating my messages uh, so that I would not bore my new bride. Uh, I also wanted to work with young people and that motivated me to begin to explore the various vocational options. I thought about prison ministry, I thought about academic ministries, and I thought about the military and ended up uh, in the United States Navy Chaplain Corps. I selected the Navy for a rather pedestrian reason, and that was the Navy was the only branch of service that permitted you to wear a full-length beard, which I had at the time and thought I could not live without. So God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. So I entered the Navy. I knew within uh, 48 hours that I had found my niche, and I spent 27 years in the Navy, uh, ending my career as the chief of 
Navy chaplains as a two-star admiral, and then transition to working with young people on Capitol Hill, an almost seamless transition, actually. Uh, and I have been on Capitol Hill uh, for 13 years. I'm into my 14th year, actually, uh, on Capitol Hill. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to provide ministry in a pluralistic setting of religious diversity with a primary demographic uh, of people from ages probably 18 to, to 40. So it's been a, a marvelous uh, honeymoon for me. Mm -hmm. Did you feel called to the ministry from a young age, or was that something that you felt uh, later towards your college years? My mother was baptized into the Christian church when she was pregnant with me. And as she was immersed in what we would call the watery grave of baptism, uh, she asked the Holy Spirit to place a special anointing on her unborn child. So there has never been another rival in my affection. I have I've always uh, felt a call to the ministry from as far back as I can remember. That's all I've ever wanted to do. Now, like Jonah... Uh, I did run from Nineveh and flee to Tarshish uh, because most of the ministers I knew were economically deprived, and I did not want uh, poverty. I had seen enough of it up close and personal to uh, run in the opposite direction. But uh, as a junior in college, uh, I felt an impression from the Holy Spirit basically saying, I never said anything about poverty if you follow my plan. And I never realized that he is able to do immeasurably, abundantly, above all that we can ask or imagine. So economic challenges I have not had by basically following his plan. So it's a call that's been on my, on me all my life. Praise the Lord. You know, it's making me think of the scripture in Psalm 116 that says, be at rest on my soul. The Lord has been good to you. And it sounds like we do have fear of future and of the unknown and things that we feel if we say yes to the Lord, we may have to give up. But again, like you said, poverty uh in a spiritual sense, is not the way of the Lord. We have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, and um, that covers a multitude of even worldly, or worldly uh, worlds. Yes, I, I also learned that ownership is an illusion. Mm. Uh, and having officiated at over 300 funerals, I've yet to see a hearse with a luggage rack. <laughs> so that that really helps you put uh, material things in perspective. First Timothy 6 says, we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, Chaplain Black, how would you say your career in the U.S. Navy helped you prepare to minister to our elected officials in Washington? I think that the fact that the environments are similar, that you're dealing with religious pluralism, you're dealing with providing uh, pastoral care to uh, the spectrum of religious traditions and denominations. Uh, you are accustomed to praying inclusive prayers. You are accustomed to facilitating for non-Christians, for bringing in a rabbi for Torah studies, an imam for Ramadan, 
uh, Hindu priest to minister, uh, that you were accustomed to providing literature for people away from home uh, based upon their religious traditions, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Torah. Uh, it's a it's wonderful preparation for providing ministry in 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 a uh, pluralistic uh, uh, religious setting. So uh, the transition is very very seamless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it must be challenging just um, in your position with how polarizing politics can be. You've got people on both sides of the aisle who probably um, you see often. It is, do you find that challenging or is it just not even an issue? I don't think it's an issue. I think that the nature of the legislative process is adversarial. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've got colliding stories. You have two uh, parties that have different uh, presuppositions regarding how government functions best. But you also have friends who meet every week for a Bible study when the Senate convenes. I just left a Bible study with about 30 senators uh, 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 rather a prayer breakfast with about 30 senators from both sides of the aisle. Um, they meet for a Bible study every week that I teach. So these are people who know one another as friends. So even as in a courtroom, the prosecution and the defense may slug it out and yet have supper with one another at a restaurant uh, in the evening, I think that you have people who are passionate about doing what is best for the country, attempting to work together, and you have people of faith who have a biblical worldview who are attempting to work together as well. And one senator commented that it is difficult to pray with the opposition and then go up into the chamber uh, half an hour later and stab that individual in his or her back. He then added the caveat, not impossible, but it is difficult to do. And so at the end of each prayer breakfast, we stand, as we did uh, this morning, join hands, and we pray together. Uh, And that's obviously something that the C-SPAN cameras never see, but there you have it. So Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, there are saints in Caesar's household. He was probably talking about Nero. Uh, And so there are morally, spiritually, and ethically fit lawmakers and staffers on Capitol Hill, and they work together, and yes, you know, you've got a prosecution and a defense, but they are able to play it out uh, in a constructive way. It may take some time, but that's what the framers intended. Mm. That must be a really beautiful thing to witness, Chaplain Black. And I'm wondering, as you've served over a several different administration, what changes have you seen in your role? Well, I think that the um, the effort to be a pastor has a certain consistency about it in spite of the ebb and flow of the various political events that influence uh, the American uh, population and those who represent the American population. You know, the lawmakers are representatives. They are selected by uh, their constituents, and they reflect uh, very much the desires and the concerns of their constituents. So you, you experience that, but 
I think going back to you know my original statement regarding uh, the fact that this is the nature of the legislative process, even as in a courtroom you have different issues, different facts, different points of law that you are arguing, but that does not still change the relationship of the lawyers to one another. I see the same thing with regard to the lawmakers and the members of their staffs. So for, you know, the nearly 14 years that I've been here, I've had Bible studies each week, I've had spiritual mentoring classes, I've had hospital visitation, I've officiated at weddings and memorial services, I've facilitated for non-Christians, I've participated in seasonal observances, you know, the they're, they're, the nature of my ministry uh, uh, remains the same. So there are differences, but there is a consistent thread throughout, and that is providing pastoral support for people who are away from home and they can't have immediate access to their local pastor uh, to help meet their spiritual and ethical needs. Mm -hmm. your, um, your newest book is titled Nothing to Fear. Um, principles and prayers to help you thrive in a threatening world. Can you talk a little bit about the book and what inspired you to, to write about this topic? Well, I was uh, having devotional reading one Sunday morning, and I was reading through Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says to his disciples, I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. And that that verse just grabbed me. And I, and I started thinking, why would a good shepherd send baby sheep uh, into the midst, not of a wolf, but of wolves? You know, when one wolf can eviscerate, you know, many sheep, and here you, you, you're sending a, a lambs into a predatory environment. And I wrestled with that for most of the day with a laptop and at the end of the day I had about 50 pages so I had a running start to dealing with this whole notion of uh, the harvest is white but the laborers are few I pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into the harvest field behold I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves be ye therefore wise as snakes and harmless as doves. In other words, have a tough mind and a tender heart. And so I saw in Matthew 10 and also Luke 10 a strategy given to us by the Good Shepherd for thriving in a threatening world. And that's, I mean, it basically was almost downloaded in my spirit. It's one of the... Uh, the quickest books that I've ever written, and uh, I think it's a it's a word from the Lord. This was written before the presidential election, the U.S. presidential election, uh, but I think it is germane to the to helping people to have uh, a a spiritual resource to deal with whatever anxieties and apprehensions they may have. Mm -hmm. And you divide your book into a few sections and then even farther into chapters which are headlined with very practical 
practical principles, which again, you break down even farther and then end with a prayer. What are some of those principles, if you will, a couple, you know, prepare to be sent, do a reality check, thrive in a predatory world, et cetera, um, that you would recommend some of us focus on? You know, if there's any one part of the book that you'd you'd recommend to our listeners. Well, I think that the seven principles provide a, uh, a strategic uh, um, uh, declaration from Jesus to his disciples about thriving in a predatory world. And you find this in the, in the Matthew 10 chapter and also in the Luke 10 chapter. He sends them out two by two uh, for one thing. So one of the things that we need to appreciate is the criticality of, of building alliances. George Marshall, the great uh, uh, Secretary of State and former General of the Army, said it is amazing what we can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says two are better than one because if one falls, there's someone to help you get back up. If one is is cold, there's someone to help you get warm. And if one is attacked, there is someone to help you in the defense. So that's a part of preparing to be, to be sent. The reality check aspect has to do with knowing exactly what you are dealing with. And many times we don't we don't do a reality check. The amazing reality check that Jesus said about the predatory world in which people are being sent, people of faith, is the harvest is white. There's plenty already uh, to be harvested. The problem is the laborers of you. And you have to harness prayer power. You don't have to worry about getting additional labors, but pray that the Lord of the harvest, and there's something supernatural about the harvest anyway. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I plant Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. So it's a matter of doing a reality check and knowing that you are indeed in a predatory world. You know, one of the, one of the serious mistakes that Joseph, the son of Jacob makes in Genesis chapter 37 is he thinks he's in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He's going toward his brothers. And the Bible says in Genesis 37, they say when they see him from afar, behold, the dreamer comes. Come down, let us kill him and cast him into a pit. And we will say a wild beast hath destroyed him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. He was oblivious to the homicidal ideations of his brothers. He failed to do a reality check. Jesus says, I want you to do a reality check and realize you're in a predatory environment. And then he says, I want you to thrive in that predatory world. And in order to thrive in that predatory world, you need to harness some prayer power. Pray ye that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest field. And you need to learn from the snake and you need to learn from the dove, and you need to learn how to reconcile these opposites and ensure that the attributes of the snake are not swallowed up by the attributes of the dove because you need both of them. You need a tough mind and a tender heart. And you see that tough mind and tender heart with David in 1 Samuel 17 in the Valley of Elah. And so you learn about the qualities of the snake, the success in slippery places, the awareness of an adversary, 
um, and on and on. And then you learn about the innocence of a dove. The Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9 says, those who walk with integrity walk securely. So when you look at the those uh, uh, chapters, we're dealing with what I call the seven pallbearers. These are the seven deadly sins, pride and lust and sloth and anger and greed and gluttony and envy. And we need an innocence that will enable us to walk with integrity so that as Daniel discovered in Daniel chapter 6, you will even be complimented by your enemies. Daniel's enemies, who were trying to get him into a lion's den, conclude in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, we can find nothing against this Daniel except it be concerning the law of his God. What a tribute from your enemies, but when you're innocent as doves, when you have that tender heart, that's what your enemies can say about you. And then... Jesus said, greet no one on the way. In other words, simplify your life, concentrate on the task, you know, uh, and meet needs. you got to start that conspiracy of kindness and then recognizing that they would experience inevitable rejection. Okay. Our Lord said in John 16:33, in this world you will have trouble. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who live godly will suffer persecution. So there will be pushback, but persevere through the rejection. Even if you have to deal with broken dreams, know that God will always give you second chances that you can seize. And the implementation of these principles will enable you to thrive in a threatening world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chaplain Black. That was an excellent summary of what the book is. I actually started reading it this morning and was really struck particularly with the chapter on living a less complicated life. And uh, wow, really resonated with that. And as a man of your stature, I'm sure that's something that you come back to over and over again, learning what to say yes to and what to say no to more importantly sometimes. And I'm wondering, with all of what you just said, if you have examples of how you've seen members of the Senate come together in cooperation. And I know you mentioned that a little bit earlier in a conversation about your prayer breakfast and seeing them as friends come around the word of God and benefit each other. Are there any other things that you might be able to share? Well, from time to time, you will you will hear about a gang of, okay? There is some type of impasse legislatively. And then a gang of six or a gang of 12, whether you're talking about immigration, whether you're talking about threats to use the nuclear option and get rid of the filibuster um, so that a simple majority can get you know, things accomplished. And inevitably, there emerges um, in opposition, basically, to the leadership on both sides, a gang of who, who will state, we're not going to permit this to happen, and we're going to unite, and, and they're representatives from both sides of the aisle. Inevitably, those gang ofs are people who regularly come together at the, at the, the, the prayer breakfast or the Bible study, and they are aware of the fact that many times you must lead from the middle. Um, these gangs, you know, they they realize that, for instance, David, as a teenager on the battlefield in the in the Valley of Elah in First King, in First Samuel chapter 17, was too young to be conscripted. He goes onto the battlefield. Goliath is giving forth his bellicose rhetoric. 
David has no positional authority, no power, but he becomes the leader in that in that drama. And the Bible says in First Samuel 17, it, all of Israel trembled and was afraid from King Saul all the way down to the lowest enlisted individual, whereas the teenager, without a uniform, asked the seminal question regarding Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should cry out against the armies of the living God? And when he gets pushback, David receives pushback from Eliab, his older brother. I know the naughtiness of your heart. Who's taking care of those few sheep? He asks again the critical question, is there not a cause? And he becomes the, the true leader in that challenging situation. So I have seen the gang ups leading from the middle, even though they're not the majority leader or the minority leader or the majority whip or the minority whip, no position, um, many times a relatively new lawmaker, and yet they come together and they accomplish things together uh, because they are aware of the fact that people of faith can make a difference if they find allies. You know, but as we said, he sent them out two by two. And they find those allies, and they make they make a significant difference. And they, I think, keep the upper chamber of the legislative branch functioning as the framers intended. If if you have a simple majority working in both houses of Congress, you don't need two houses of Congress because the Senate becomes just like the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Now, as we're sort of coming to the end of our time here i have one final question for you um we're mm-hmm. we're sort of living we're living in a time of transition we have a new president being uh, inaugurated this week and there's some uh uncertainty and some people have fears about wanting change to happen and some people have fears about not wanting change to happen and i'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners for dealing with these fears that they have in a productive way well, First John 4:18 says, "There is no fear in love, for perfect love casteth out fear." Uh, and I actually wrote an article for Christianity Today before the election called, uh, entitled "Casting Out Post-Election Fears," because I believe that when the focus is on the sovereign God of the universe, who loves us more than we love ourselves, it it eviscerates fear. In fact, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and self-discipline. So the affect of fear is not of God. And so we also have Isaiah 26.3 that says, I will keep you in perfect peace if you keep your mind on me. So again, keeping the focus where it should be. You have Romans 8.28, in everything God is working for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. And then you have the confident declamation in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in God's hands, and he turns that heart any way he desires. So I think when you are aware of the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence, the omnipresence, the omniscience of God, it, it, will, it will chase away fear. And then when you realize how God used leaders 
who did not even even know him, okay, um, he selected for Samuel chapter 3 a 12-year-old, okay. The Bible says Samuel worked in the temple, but he did not know God. And God bypassed Eli, the head guy in the leader in the temple, and spoke to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel thought it was Eli. He went to Eli three times. Eli finally realized, God has bypassed me and is speaking to a 12-year-old. And he said, Samuel, the next time you hear that voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So here is someone God is speaking to who does not even know God in that way yet. God takes uh, a pagan monarch, Pharaoh, and sends him a dream, fat cows, thin cows, full ears of corn, sparse ears of corn, in order that Egypt could become the breadbasket for the world and, and feed people during a famine. Then later when a pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph and gives a genocidal decree that the male Hebrew baby should be put to death, God uses that pagan monarch to rear Moses in the palace, Israel's liberator. That pharaoh is the one who ends up rearing Moses to become Israel's liberator. He didn't realize it at the time, but he was he, he was doing that because that is the God that we serve. This is the God who in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, permits Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to be delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant, a pagan Babylonian monarch who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace. And before he did it, said, heat the furnace seven times hotter than it is right now. Okay, And who predicts the coming of Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45, calling Cyrus my shepherd. And Cyrus is the one who diverts the waters of the Euphrates and defeats Babylon on the very night that Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. In that very night, Belshazzar uh, is slain. That activity is predicted in Isaiah chapter 45. Well, those who say Deuteral Isaiah would say that it was not a prediction, but a historical event. But those who believe in the supernaturally predicted would say his Cyrus is predicted, and Cyrus is a pagan monarch. So it is this kind of understanding of the power of God and how he has acted in history that eviscerates fear. And it is that perfect love for that sovereign king who is omnipotent mm -hmm. that takes care of fear. And that is what I would challenge people of faith to focus on. When you love that God, he says, I've got this. And he has a track record of accomplishing things through people who do not even know that they are being used by him. Mm -hmm. Amen. I've been writing all these things down, Chaplain Black, and, you know, knowing that the Lord's perfect love casts out fear and that him whose mind is steadfast on the Lord, he will keep him in perfect peace it uh, brings so much hope because God is so much bigger than the things we see. 
And I am going to encourage our listeners who have been with us this hour to check out Nothing to Fear, Principles and Prayers to Help You Thrive in a Threatening World by Barry Black. Um, I know Praise that you'll find it as encouraging as Adam and I have. And Chaplain Black, we're so thankful that you've spent this time with us in the midst of your busy day. We really do appreciate it. Well, it's an honor. And I would say people of faith ought to be experiencing an adrenaline rush right now because so many of us want a testimony, but so few of us want to be tested. This is testing time. This is an opportunity to see how the sovereign God of the universe operates. And I'm just so uh, elated to be at this particular time in human history where we have an opportunity to be tested in a way that will bring glory to the sovereign God of the universe. Amen. Thank you. Yes. I, I've never actually, Chaplain Black, thought about being tested and having a testimony. And uh, testimonies are what bring glory to God. So may we avail ourselves to him. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you very much. Thank we you pray so blessings much. over you. Thank you. My honor. You take care and keep lifting us in prayer. We will. Thank you, Chaplain Black. Thank you. Surely. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye.